You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Brothers, this Lord Jesus shall return again. That was the subject we looked at last week in 1 Thessalonians, the end of the chapter 4, 4.13 through the end of that chapter. A great subject as we considered the coming of the Lord for his own and his drawing them to himself in resurrection power. We go right on with this text, even though this is not a series of a study of this book of Thessalonians, but it makes sense as we look at this subject of after death, what? To consider the very next portion. And so I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 for you. Listen to God's holy word. Now, brothers, about times and dates we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day, and we do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. This is God's Word. May we hear it with the urgency that it conveys to a sleepy day like ours. 270 years after it was preached for the first time in New England, there is a particular sermon by the Reverend Jonathan Edwards titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God that I would say without question now qualifies perhaps as the most notorious of all pulpit messages ever heard in America. It's been made to be notorious even though it is an outstanding biblical exposition, largely because it has been carried in high school literary anthologies for many decades now. And my family has personal experience on two occasions with the way in which this sermon of Edwards, looked at as a literary specimen, has drawn the ridicule of secular English teachers as they tell their students that here is an example of the kind of foolish religion that once prevailed in America. You may know that the master preacher, Edwards, spoke with vivid imagery in a sermon that very much excited its original hearers. He talked about sinners walking on rotting floorboards, about to give way and drop them into a burning furnace. He spoke about people dangling by no more support than a spider's web above the wrath of God. 
And the popular imagination looks at this sermon and says, oh, just look at that. Those old-fashioned preachers of hellfire and brimstone from an ignorant age, they weren't in touch with the warmer, more cuddly version of God that we all know about today. Well, in actual fact, Edwards was emphasizing something people never seem to understand. He was emphasizing the grace of God. The grace of God that was upholding people and preserving them from a destruction that they could easily have dropped into at any moment. He was saying that in this present hour, his hearers were being preserved by a God whose preservation they did not deserve. And if they would only understand that and look to this God in faith, they would be preserved by his grace eternally. Well, noting that our century is one that scorns the whole idea of a God who dares to hold any human being accountable as their judge, one writer said, today the situation we have, if we would take Edward's sermon title, we need to turn it around and say, God is in the hands of angry sinners in our day today. Now let me review our progress in this series of messages called After Death, What? Two months ago, I began looking at the origins, the the appearance of death in the Bible and how the Bible defines death from a spiritual vantage point. Not as simply the cessation of the cells of your body and the beating of your heart, but as a spiritual consequence to the sin of humanity. We looked at how the Old Testament had glimpses and views of what was beyond death. We then looked at the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christ and saw those were certainly the key events of the Bible that talk about the defeat of death for those who were within the faith on those events, faith in the cross of Christ, faith in the resurrection of Christ. We considered some other things, and then two weeks ago we heard assurance of the immediacy of heaven from 2 Corinthians 5 for those who belong to Christ. Immediately, absent from this body means presence with the Lord. Then last week in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and following, we saw how the final phase of heaven would be inaugurated as Christ would return, claim his own, those who had died before and those who were alive then, and would raise them up into glorified bodies to be with him forever. Now, wouldn't it be a happy thing? You would all love it if what I would do from here on would be simply to extol the glories of this heaven, the wonders of what it means to belong to this God and be with Him forever. And if God preserves me, I will indeed do that. In fact, the plan is for you to have a heavenly winter because the whole month of January and half of February, I want to speak about heaven and the resurrection body. But for the remainder of October and through November, we need to turn to the hard side of this subject. For if we would talk about after death what, we must include not only what is for the believer, but what the Bible says awaits unbelief. And I would tell you that as a human being, I am more reluctant to do this than almost anything I can think of, but I must do it. Because I must be faithful to the Word of God. 
You will find that next month in November, uh, you're forewarned. Stay away from church in November. Because in the 8th and the 15th and the 22nd, I plan to speak directly of the hardest reality of the entire Bible, the reality of hell. And you don't want to hear this. And I don't want to speak it. But we must come and approach these things and understand them soberly and in a true reverence of God, realizing that here will be the destiny of true people that we know. And I don't pursue these subjects because they're entertaining, but because the truth of God and His Word demand it. We will have a truncated half-gospel if we do not squarely consider God's holy judgment upon obstinate unbelief. And so going from last week's message at the end of 1 Thessalonians 4, we bridge now into 1 Thessalonians 5, a continuous narrative. Now, brothers, he says, I'm continuing what I was talking about, the return of Christ. That's still the subject as Paul opens here. And he opens with a common question about when will the Lord return, the times and the seasons. And he refuses to deal with that. He says, you know I don't need to write you about that. Obviously, he had already taught them in the past. And I'm sure he had taught them what Jesus said when he said, no man knows the day or the hour. Those who pretend they do are fools. No man knows the day or the hour. Not even the Son, Jesus said, but the Father knows this day and this hour. And so Paul continues that emphasis of Christ in this passage, underscoring the sudden, unannounced, inescapable nature of the return of Christ. And obviously, particularly by verse 3, which is the main focus this morning, he sees in this a dire word for those who are outside of faith in Jesus Christ. Because the emphasis of that coming of Christ is that there will be final judgment for all mankind following Christ's return. The way a clap of thunder follows the flash of lightning. They cannot be separated. The two events go together. And so as a first point this morning, I ask you to see that Christ's great return fulfills the biblical prediction of a day of the Lord. Paul told the Thessalonians that the key issue about this final appearing of Christ was not to have a timetable in hand like a bus schedule and say, oh, I see this has happened, this has happened, this has happened, and so this year Christ will come. No one is going to have that bus schedule. And anyone who says they do is a fool. We need to know that what Scripture tells us will occur when this promise event comes will happen, and knowing what will happen is all the forewarning we require if we have responded in faith to these events. We heard in chapter 4 the wondrous result that it will bring for believers. Resurrection bodies, presence with the Lord forever. Judgment will not threaten us. Yes, believers are judged, but the judgment is for one thing. Do you belong to Christ? That's all. Once passing that, we have nothing to fear from judgment. But now we see in chapter 5 and verse 2 that this day of Christ's appearing, and it's not necessarily a 24-hour day, but it's an event called a day, 
It is called here the day of the Lord. Now that's a technical term in the Bible that has quite a bit behind it. The Old Testament has numerous predictions about this from the prophets, and I'll only take a time to just touch a few of them. But the Old Testament speaks about the day of the Lord, sometimes also in the New Testament called the day of Christ, as a climactic, terminus point when God reveals himself. And the dominant feature in terms of Old Testament prediction about this day, at least, is that it is a day of judgment. It is a day of awe, a day when the revelation of God will be so great that certainly the unbeliever will run in fear and ask mountains to fall upon him. Isaiah 2.10 is a place you might consider along this line. Isaiah 2.10-12 says to the unbeliever in that day, Go into the rocks. Hide in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty. For the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And all that is now exalted, meaning human beings, will be humbled. Later on, Joel Chapter 2, verse 11 says, The day of the Lord is great and dreadful. Who can endure it? But there's a a mention I would bring to light. There are others we could look at. For time's sake, I'm not doing it. But one I would highlight from the very last chapter of the Bible, and it's no accident that it is in the last chapter of the Bible, because in that last, or the last chapter of the Old Testament, I mean, that it warns of what will come in the New Testament. Malachi chapter 4 speaks about the day of the Lord. And it too speaks of judgment. It says the day is coming and it will burn like a furnace and all the arrogant and evildoers will be as stubble like the crisp remains of a field that a a grass fire has swept through. But Malachi 4.2 also says this. It says that this day will not be doom for those who trust in the Lord. In fact, it has a wonderful promise. It says this. For you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go out like calves released from the stall. Now Malachi knew that that would ring true with me living in Lancaster County, PA. I have an Amish farm in the valley right below my house. I drive by it every day. Cows of all ages live there. And my wife and I especially love the calves. We laugh. We get great entertainment out of the calves. You know what the old cows do? They never run. I mean, if you see an older cow running, it's really scared. But what do calves do? They run all the time. They chase each other around. My wife just, she says, look at those calves. They're just chasing each other. They're just a picture of glee and delight. Well, the Bible chose that image for believers who would greet their Savior in the day of the Lord. They will leap like calves released from their stall. Why, folks, with an image like that, it would tell me there may even be a few Presbyterians kicking up their heels. (laughs) Hard to believe. Hard to believe that even hard-shell Presbyterians might be jumping with delight when they greet the Lord. Notice that 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 does call the 
the day of Christ's return that has just been mentioned at the end of chapter 4, the day of the Lord. And so there's, a, there's an identification between that Old Testament prediction of a day that people would run from in fear and, and great awe and everything else, but believers would greet with joy and this return of Christ. 2 Peter 3.10, if you want another New Testament reference, says the same, likens Christ's return to the day of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3.13 has an interesting reference where it simply says, the day. It's as if now with Christ in the picture, you don't even have to say the day of the Lord. You just say the day, capital D. The great day of history in which God will display himself in his holiness and the sight of Christ will bring blessing and mercy to faithful believers, but it will bring joy and woe. Or I'm not joy. It will bring woe and judgment upon unbelief. Now, the keynote emphasis here is an image or a figure of speech that this day arrives with the suddenness of a thief's entry in the night to burglarize a house. I don't know if you've ever been the subject. I'm sure some of you have had your houses entered or you've been burglarized. It happened to Carol and I when we were newlyweds way back in seminary decades ago. And I remember it. It actually happened in an afternoon. It wasn't at night. We were out shopping or something. We weren't home. We came back to find our whole apartment building with six apartments in it in an uproar because this man had entered five out of the six apartments when people were basically off at work. And I thought, how offensive. You could have at least sent me a note saying, I plan to visit tomorrow and clean out your cash and your valuables. Hope it won't be too much inconvenience. But, of course, he didn't do that. And that's not the modus operandi of a burglar. Thieves never work that way. Surprise without warning is their stock in trade. Well, the Scripture is saying here that the judge on this devastating day is going to come with that kind of surprise. And who is the judge? Why, we are told that Jesus Christ is the judge. The one we greet with joy as Savior will also be the judge. John 5, verse 22 says, The Father has given all judgment over unto the Son. God has delegated this task to His Son. Now, the judgment of Christ on this last day will not be, you know, you think of what a judge does and you think of a courtroom and a trial. What do we do at a trial? A trial is basically an investigative procedure to try to discover facts and see if you have a case that will prove a crime has occurred, right? Well, the judgment of Christ is not investigative. It does not need to discover facts, for the mind and perfect knowledge of God knows all the facts it needs to know. Jesus in John 10 said he is the good shepherd knows his sheep. He knows every one of them. He knows them by name. He calls them by name, he said. And that implies the flip side is also true. He knows those who are not his, as well as those who are. And so Christ will have the unique power to represent the only sovereign God who created us, and as our Redeemer as well, he has the prerogative to come and judge human beings and declare our final destiny. Acts 17, 31 declares it. God it says, has fixed a day 
when he will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has appointed, he doesn't give the name there, but you know who the man is by the next phrase, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There isn't any question about who the judge is. The risen Christ. So to sum up a large picture here, when we say Christ's great return fulfills the biblical day of the Lord, this day of the Lord is a sort of two-sided manifestation of both judgment upon unbelief and mercy and blessing to the righteous people of God who know and trust in this judge before he returns. Second point today. See the emphasis in our text that says the sinful attitude of unbelief toward the day of the Lord is simply amazing. The sinful attitude of unbelief towards the day of the Lord is simply amazing. Verse 3 says, while people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly. Do you realize that peace and safety are a dominant theme of modern life? The late Dr. Francis Schaeffer showed difficult trends and events that were developing in Western society, but he said, you know, a lot of the Christian people are going to turn aside and not be concerned about these things because they will do almost anything to protect what he called their personal peace and affluency. And he was pretty much right. What is it we want government to provide for us? Well, we say government ought to be able to guarantee that we could have our little domestic social lives without being bothered by international problems. And you can see it in the headlines today. People across our society say, hey, we don't want a president in the White House who sends troops out to fight and and kill those people who threaten us and want to kill us. Give us a president whose theme will be negotiation. All we need is negotiation. Let's sit down with the president of Iran around a campfire and sing Kumbaya. Peace and safety. But it is not in accord with the reality of the world. If we only want peace and safety and plentiful jobs and prosperity, we are naive and most deceived. We are acting out of accord with the realities of eternity. Scripture is trying to give us an eternal perspective, lift us out of this worldly blindness we have. Let me put it this way. What if I knew somehow God had given me a sure prediction, and I was as certain of it as I am of my life, that your house, every one of you, I couldn't, well, let's just take any one of you, someone's house in this sanctuary was going to blow up in a natural gas explosion at 1.57 p.m. this afternoon as you were resting after Sunday dinner. Now, if I knew that was going to happen, would I greet you at the door and say, gee, have a nice day today. I hope your afternoon is just wonderful. Relax. Enjoy your home. Draw your family and your kids into it and and have a great day. What kind of a person would I be unless I would go to you at your home with that knowledge and bang on your front door, and once you open the door, plead with you, saying, please 
Get out of your home. Don't stop to pack up your suitcases. Don't go and get your important papers. Don't put the antiques out in your yard. Your house is going to blow up in three minutes. Get out. And if you wouldn't listen to me, I'd probably grab your small children and run out myself and try to save them as the clock struck 1.57 p.m. Well, that is the nature, ladies and gentlemen, of what Paul is talking about here. The response of unbelieving humanity to the warnings of the Lord God about the day of the Lord and the return of Christ matches exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24, 37. There Jesus said, as it will, be, it will be in the future as it was in the days of Noah. He said, people will be eating and drinking and marrying. Those are all good things. God doesn't frown on eating, drinking, and marrying. They're all fine things to do. But he says they'll be doing those things, and the point was all consumed by those things right up to the hour that the flood came and swept people away in Noah's time. 2 Peter 3, 4 contains an interesting word where Peter, a different author, summarizes the attitude he had heard in his day, and he knew that there were those who said, where is this coming that God promised? Give me a break. Everything has continued exactly as it was since the creation. They forgot about the flood, didn't they? Everything is considered just the same, and it's always going to be just the same. Don't talk to me about this coming. You see, the Scripture is saying people are not merely ignorant. They are willfully ignorant. They reject an innate knowledge of God, Romans 1 says, that is available to them. They know God. They know they're accountable to God. But they put that knowledge down and rebel against it. John Calvin said, Anything that is not immediately visible to the eye of unbelief is counted to be mythical. Coming, Christ returning, give me a break. And so people say, peace and safety. Where's my stock market report? Give me the Sunday paper. How is the real estate market doing? How are the Phillies doing in the playoffs? Hey, give me the important stuff. For that is what my life centers on. And they sneer in the face of Christ returning to history as Lord and Judge. Activities of this earth that are perfectly fine activities, they're They're certainly legitimate to eat and drink and go to weddings and do your business and take care of your family. By all means, do those things. But don't be all consumed in those things and let those things become your little idol gods until you have no grip on the fact that eternity stands at the threshold of your life. The little while that you spend on this earth is so short. It's absolutely ridiculous. And the unbeliever has no capacity to consider that there will come in an hour he does not suspect a cataclysmic end to that little bubble of a daydream world he's been living in. Now thirdly, notice this. And it's the hardest thing of all. How 1 Thessalonians 5.3 speaks about the action of Christ to the unconverted, to the unbeliever, 
on that final day. Chapter 4, remember, he spoke the good news first. Believers in Christ, caught up with him, resurrected the dead in Christ first, then those who were alive, given resurrection bodies with the Lord forever. But now the other side. Regarding unbelief, it says this, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Destruction is a terrible word. It's a word that we're going to talk about. In fact, in November, most of one Sunday, we'll be talking about what that word means. There are those who would like to say the word means extinction or obliteration. You will see at another time, but for now, maybe take my word. The Bible doesn't allow that translation here. In fact, if you would just look ahead, you may have to turn a page or look ahead a page in your Bible to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. The same word is there, and it's elaborated on a little bit more. The same situation is being talked about, and Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people. I wish I could tell you that all that meant was extinction. What it means is ruin. It means ruin for the illusion of material peace and safety in which millions of people live today. It includes the final reproach of Jesus spoken elsewhere from his own mouth when he said, at that day I will have to say to people who think they belong to me because of some nominal attachment to my church or or doing good deeds with their lives or something, I will have to say to them, depart from me for I have never known you at all. Banishment from the presence, joy, protection, and grace of the living God forever. In other words, those who want to be separate from knowing God and his son today and show it in every way in their lives will finally get their wish. And they will be separated from him for eternity. And look, this comes suddenly. It's going to seize you. It comes the way a woman's labor pains come. Oh, sure, she has some idea. Maybe the illustration is not a perfect one. A woman has some idea that the day is near. But then the hour comes and the pain starts to grip and she does not have the luxury of saying, oh, wait a minute, Please stop pain. I have to put this off. I'm going to have my hair done this morning. I've got important appointments this afternoon. It can't be today. Her body says, it is today. And whatever was on your calendar, forget it. You are swept up in an event that you did not decide upon. And everything else takes a back seat. If the earlier image of the thief in the night emphasized surprise, the birth pains image here emphasizes no escape. It seizes you. It grips you. It takes you whether you want to go or not. And the Scripture is saying those who oppose and disregard the gospel of Christ crucified 
and risen are not engaged, ladies and gentlemen, in some little minor error of theology which they will be able to put right in the day of the Lord. They will be seized by this event and undone. No time for change. What a somber message. You might wonder, is there anything possible that I could say of a positive way to conclude this message? Thank God there is. For ladies and gentlemen, I would ask you to look at verses 4 to 6 of this text. Today, for people of faith in Christ, today is a day of the grace of God. The God who warns you of these terrible things coming for unbelief is a God of grace. Edwards preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He was emphasizing more than God's anger and wrath, which he said you ought to know that God has great wrath because he's holy and you're not. But let me tell you of his grace. And Edwards said you're walking on these rotting floorboards over a furnace. But what was his point? His point wasn't just about the furnace. His point was, you're still walking. You're still held up. God is still showing you his grace in this moment. And he wants to show you that grace for eternity. And he will. You don't need to be suddenly destroyed. What does 1 Thessalonians say? Oh, brothers, you're not in darkness that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are sons of light and sons of the day. Is this true of you, ladies and gentlemen? How are you a son of the day, a son of the light? Why? Because you've come on your knees before this God and Savior, and you have said, my God, I can see that in the last day I will have no plea but Jesus. I will have nothing to rescue me but Christ who died and rose for me. I take hold of him now so that in that day it won't be a midnight of terror for me. It will be a day of joy and I expect to leap like a calf. Watch me leap. You may not think I can leap. I will then, I promise you. For God's day of grace will be completed. His grace is held out to you even in a dark text like this. Whether you will experience the day of the Lord as pitch dark, midnight, threatening, gloom, and terror, or as the day of the most shining joy ever, depends on who you are today in relation to Jesus Christ. And Jesus said in John 5, 24, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me has, has now eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Do you believe that? Do you know where you stand with the Savior? Boys and girls, do you know? Young people, you're going out in the world, you're thinking about this faith, you're saying these things are incredible. I don't know what I think. Do you know the Savior? Have you crossed over from death to life? It makes all the difference. 
prodigal son came home expecting to beg of his father a corner of the barn, a dirty corner by the manure pile where he could sleep. That's the way you need to come to your father and say, Father, I don't deserve anything but a dirty corner of your barn to be your servant forever. And guess what he'll do? He'll take hold of you in his embrace. He'll lift you up and he'll say, My son, my daughter, rejoice, household. My child has come. The delight of my grace. I want him beside me in eternity. You can know that. And I pray that you will. Our Father, it's a threatening message we have here. But only to those who would go out of here today in blindness and self-deceit, consumed by the gods of this world, thinking this is all there will ever be. Peace and safety now, success, prosperity, a home that's undisturbed, What flimsy goals those are. Keep our eyes on what is eternal. Thank you for the day of grace. Thank you for the Savior whom we don't have to face as a threatening judge. May that face of Christ not be seen by even one who hears me today. For his honor and praise we ask. Amen.